That's that's. Yeah, that's rough. So we are starting a series. We're starting in First Kings 17, and we're going to be teaching through the ministry of Elijah. Elijah is an extremely famous prophet, and he's a very big deal throughout the Bible. He's referenced multiple times in the New Testament, multiple times in the Old Testament. If you guys have ever heard that John the Baptist was the second Elijah, Elijah's a big name. So we're going to be going through Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings. And since we're starting a narrative portion of the Bible, I think it's important to start with where are we in the overall timeline of the Bible. We just rearranged words, reoriented the room, so you'll have to crane your neck a bit while I write on this whiteboard. But when we talk about the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible starts at creation, and this is in Genesis 1 through 3, and then from creation we get Israel and the patriarchs. And this is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the second half of the book of Genesis, and then they go into Egypt for 400 years, and then we have the Exodus where God brings his people out of Egypt under Moses and they go into the wilderness, they go into the promised land, and then they refuse to go into the promised land like idiots, and then God kills off that generation and they get a second chance. And then after that, you have Joshua. And in Joshua, you have the conquest of Canaan where Israel goes in and they conquer Canaan. And then after Joshua dies, then you have the judges. And the judges is a period in Israel's history where they have no king. It's a very tribal society, and God is sending judges that are saving Israel where they're sinning, then God judges them, then they repent, then God sends a judge to save them, and they sin again, and on and on and on. And that's the judges. And then at the end of the judges, you have Saul, where in 1 Samuel, Israel gets its first king, but the problem is Saul sucks. So then you get David. And David, we all know who David is. And this is the beginning of what we call the United Kingdom. Where all of Israel is being ruled by a single king. And then from David, we get Solomon. And then after Solomon, we get Rehoboam. And under Rehoboam, all of Israel comes to Rehoboam and they say, Hey, Rehoboam, Solomon taxed us a lot. Would you tax us a bit less? And then Rehoboam is like, Actually, I'm going to tax you more. And as soon as he does that, the kingdom splits, and we get the divided kingdom. It's 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 pretty bad. Divided kingdom. So what essentially happens is you have Judah and Benjamin, and Judah and Benjamin stay in the south, and these are the ones who are ruled by the Davidic king, and then in the north you have Israel. And this is all of the rest of the tribes of Israel. So you have Israel split into these two kingdoms and then the Philistines are over here. And then there's other nations kind of surrounding them on all sides. Yeah, basically. So this is where we are in our story. We're in the divided kingdom. But then after the divided kingdom, you get the exile where God removes Israel from Israel. They get scattered into Babylonia. And then you have the return And that's Ezra and Nehemiah, which we went through Nehemiah a while back. And then after the return, you've got Jesus. And then after Jesus is the church age, where we are now. Wow, I I don't know how to spell, apparently. And then after the church age, you have the end times. And this is where God restores the kingdom of Israel. This is where all of the plagues of Revelation happen. And then God destroys the world, new heavens and new earth. 
So this is a big overview of the entirety of human history. And then in the divided kingdom, this is where our series is taking place, where we are in Israel, not Judah and Benjamin, which is interesting. We're in Israel under the reign of a king named Ahab. And we're watching the ministry of Elijah. So here's the thing that's significant. Ahab is one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever has. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, you've got good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And I think it's still mostly bad kings, but you've got good kings mixed in there too. Israel only has bad kings. That's it. They're just, they're, they're struggle busting all the way through. So Ahab is one of the worst kings that Israel has. And if you guys have ever heard of Jezebel, who knows the name Jezebel? That was Ahab's wife. So before we get into 1 Kings 17, just before that in 16, 29 through 34, uh, I want to just read you what the Bible says about Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Uh, that is not the title that you want to have on your headstone. Yeah, he sucked worse than anyone who came before him. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Uh, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ebram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. No, so in uh, the book of Joshua, when Joshua and the Israel destroyed Jericho, uh, Joshua pronounces a curse, and he says, whoever sets the foundation will set it at the cost of his firstborn. Whoever builds the walls will do it at the cost of his youngest son. So basically what happened is this guy did not heed that prophecy, built up Jericho, and then God killed his firstborn, and God killed his youngest son. So whether that's like in the construction, they like fell into concrete or something, I don't know. Maybe they died of a completely unrelated cause and the only one who knew it was related was like God. You know, who knows? We're not given specifics. But that's roughly where we're at. That is not the resume that you want to have as you're serving as God's king. Hard pass, not a good idea. And so now that we have the context, now that we know where we are in the history of the world, we know where we are in the history of the divided kingdom, we're about to be introduced to Elijah. So in 17, in chapter 17, verse 1, we're going to start with the drought. This is called Elijah and the drought. So the drought comes. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the, book Cherith, by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. That's just cool, man. Like this so that we're capturing where we're at. 
So there's a few things that are kind of significant from this. Thing number one, Elijah, as I've already said, is one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah is a really big deal. Elijah was not sent to Judah. Elijah was not sent to the more obedient of the two kingdoms. Elijah was sent to the more disobedient of the two kingdoms, and he was sent to one of the most horrible kings that Israel ever had. The worst king ever reigns, and God sends one of his best prophets. Like, one of the things that's valuable to think about is think about how kind God is. Like, God didn't look at Ahab and then just say, ah, whatever, go ahead and burn. I'm going to ruin your life. Like, he sends Elijah to discipline and plead with Ahab. And so that's what Elijah does. And he says, has a judgment for Ahab's reign, that there's not going to be any rain, that there's going to be a drought. And so God brings him to the brook, and uh, he has birds feed him. So, like... Elijah is drinking water from the stream, and then birds are just dropping off his lunch every day. <laughs> like, just how cool? I think that's cool. I probably think that's more cool than, than it, I, I think that's hilarious. I just, I don't know. Okay, you should, uh, and so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith, and that is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the book, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, in this section of the story, there's a few things that we should learn. There's two things in specific that I'm going to zero in on. Here's the first thing. In modern day, when we have droughts, what do we do? Freak out. Freak out? <laughs> uh, close. What do we do? We get water from other places. We get water from other places. We were in a drought in California for, I think it was like six, seven years. I don't remember the exact length. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. So now we're in an even worse drought. So like all of that's been going on. We live in California, Southern California, which is basically a desert. Like Southern California does not naturally have enough water to support the population. We import a ton of water. We import food. And so now when we have a drought, it basically does nothing to change our lives. We're just chilling. I actually used to live in Chibuco Canyon before I went to Costa Rica. Yeah. And uh, for all, all the time I lived there, the all, all the time that I was there, it was just like a desert, living in the desert. Yeah. So I was in Santa Clarita, same deal, man. But we import water from other places. We don't die. Back in these days, back in the pre-industrial age, like in the modern day, the only industrialized country that still experiences famine is North Korea. That's it. Like, we live in a completely, well, Africa's not industrialized. So we live in a completely different world, basically, than the Israelites did. In this time, even if there wasn't a drought, you were struggling to produce enough food to get yourself through the winter and get your family through the winter. Now that there's a drought and none of your crops are growing, you have no water to drink and you have no food to eat. People are dying. In fact, this ends up lasting for three and a half years. So for three and a half years, you just have people dying and starving to death and thirsting to death. I don't know what that is, dehydrating to death, one of them. So that's pretty rough. Like that's hardcore. And one of the things that's important is I'm gonna draw your attention to Exodus 34, six through seven. When God is speaking about himself to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we love that part of Exodus 34, six through seven. And then the next thing it says is, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And one of the difficulties that we have in like 21st century Christianity 
is that we tend to really like thinking about and talking about God's love and God's mercy. You know, God's a big teddy bear in the sky. God is like, he, he's, the, uh, he's the vending machine who you just say your prayers and he gives you what you want. And like, that's just all those happy, cuddly things. We love talking about those, but we don't like talking about, oh yeah, but also God's a God of justice. God sees sin and God punishes sin fiercely. And we have a hard time because of that when we read the Old Testament and we read things like God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, God drowning millions of people when he flooded the world, God sending armies to siege Israel and Jerusalem, and all of the nastiness that comes with that. We read these stories and we have a hard time reconciling that with the happy, loving, forgiving God that we hear about in church on Sunday. But the reality is we do ourselves no service to talk about one attribute of God and ignore all the others. God is loving, God is merciful, but God judges sin. And the consequences for sin are drastic. And so one of the things that we are supposed to learn as God sends a drought on his own people is that we're supposed to fear God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There is a lot of benefit that comes into your life when you are afraid of God. And not in the sense that like God's this monster that you need to run away from, but in the sense of like you're, you might not punch your sibling if you're afraid of the spanking that follows. If you know that your parents are going to discipline you for that sin, then that can help motivate you to, I don't know, not commit the sin. (laughs) And in a similar fashion, if your goal in life is the pleasure of God, where you want to not sin and you want to live the way God wants you to, one of the convenient things that can help motivate you in that is understanding that sin comes with consequences. And God is merciful and God is kind. And sometimes he doesn't give us the consequences that our sin deserves. In fact, frequently, that's what he does. But when you understand, oh, this sinful action that I want to do, yeah, it'll make me feel good for a moment, but I know that God's watching and that God's not cool with that. I'm going to not do that because I'm aware there will be consequences. That's a helpful thing. And so when you read the Old Testament and you see the way that God punishes sin, that's supposed to be a warning. Additionally, that is supposed to, for example, teach you about hell. In the Old Testament... They didn't have near as much teaching on the, on the uh, afterlife as we do. Most of what we know about heaven and hell comes from the mouth of Jesus. So for them, they're not constantly thinking about the afterlife in the same way that we would be. So instead, they're having to look out at the world as it functions. And so this is a thing that's supposed to be teaching Israel and all of the people of the world that God is a God of justice, that God punishes sin and God punishes nations. So that's major. We're supposed to be learning that we should be afraid of God. Not this like monstrous fear of an enemy, but a healthy fear of a parent. If you are a Christian, God's discipline is for your good. But then there's another thing. One of the things we're supposed to learn is that prayer is powerful. The way that the drought came about is that Elijah prayed for it. Elijah got on his knees and he prayed for it. And I don't think it says that specifically in this passage, but in James 5, 16 to 17, James looks back at Elijah and he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. We have a tendency to look at like our Bible heroes 
as uh, stained glass saints, where we're like, you know, they were able to do incredible things and they were so righteous and powerful, but I can't do that. That's beyond my reach. And James looks back at Elijah and he says, no, Elijah was a bro, man. Elijah was a dude. He was a guy. Elijah had no special powers. Elijah wasn't like half Zeus or something. Elijah was not some demigod. Elijah was just a Tishbite. And Elijah prayed, and then it didn't rain for three and a half years. One of the things that the New Testament wants us to learn from this situation is that prayer is powerful. That your prayer actually has an effect. That one of the ways that God works in the world is he has his people pray for something so that he can answer that prayer. That one of the ways that God works in the world is by your prayers. One of the ways God saves people is by your prayers. One of the ways that God guards the government of our country is by you praying for its leaders. One of the ways that God grows your parents, one of the ways that God grows your siblings, one of the ways that God grows you is by you praying for it. Prayer is a radically powerful thing. And one of the things we're supposed to learn from Elijah is that God could have just sent a drought. Instead, he had Elijah pray for it. And then he sent the drought. How many things is God having you pray for so that he can answer your prayer powerfully? Prayer. It's important. So we're going to move on. So after that, in the the next section, we're going to talk about Elijah and the widow. So the drought goes on, and in verse 7, we've got a problem because the brook dried up. Elijah's water source is gone, man. Ahab's really not wanting to let up, so the drought's still in the land. And in verse uh, 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, "Uh, uh, Bring bring me a morsel of bread in your hand too. And And then she says in verse 12, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So let's just like unpack that a little bit. We've been in a drought for a long enough time for a brook to dry up at least. I don't know how far into the drought we are exactly. But you've got this widow in Sidon who widows are poor. And she has only enough food left for one more meal for her and her son, and then they're just going to starve to death. That's where they're at. That's, that's a rough spot. And then Elijah comes, and he says, hey, hey, um, give me the rest of your food. Like, just imagine that. If, if you had a person in the modern day that's, like, living paycheck to paycheck, they're on the verge of absolute financial disaster, and then a traveling preacher walks up to them and says, hey, give me all of your food crazy. (laughs) But the lady actually does it. So in verse 13, and Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. In other words, I eat before you and your son eat and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
And now at this point, a reasonable response might be, I think you're lying to me, buzz off. But in verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So there's two things to think about. We've already talked about the dire circumstance of the rest of the uh, nation of Israel and whatnot. This is a Gentile woman. Elijah did not go to an Israelite. He went to a Sidonite. In other words, that's the same nation that Jezebel's from. And that's who God sends Elijah to. And in Luke 4, Jesus is speaking to the Nazareth, uh, to people in Nazareth, and he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So we see, first of all, God cares for people that other people might not. Israelites did not like Gentiles. After Jesus says this in Luke, 20, in Luke chapter 4, all of the Naz, uh, people of Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. Like Jesus basically says, hey man, God cares about Gentiles, and then everyone tries to kill him. So Israel does not like Gentiles, and that's a pretty common theme throughout their history. And God sends Elijah to a Gentile. So all of the people who might have said, hey, God, I'm an Israelite. Why are you sending him to her instead of sending him to me? Why are you taking care of a Gentile instead of taking care of an Israelite? But God took care of the Gentile. So God cares about people that other people don't care about. He sent her to a Gentile and to a widow, a marginalized group that were often vulnerable and not cared for. So God cares about the people that no one else sees. And so we see something about God's mercy. Here's the other thing we see. We see something about obedience. This non-Israelite woman, as the nation of Israel is in disobedience, this non-Israelite woman is given an instruction that makes no sense by a man who is not one of her prophets, and she follows it. One of the things that I often see as I see people respond to the Bible is that even if they concede that God says something, if it doesn't make sense to them, they don't do it. And there are plenty of situations where I'm talking to someone, I'm like, well, the Bible says this. And they say, well, that doesn't make sense to me because of this. And one of the things that is crucial in the life of a Christian is that even if you don't understand, you do it. And maybe after you've been doing it for a while and you keep thinking about it and you keep thinking on it, you'll eventually realize, oh, this is why God told me to do that. Now it makes sense. But in the entire space where you didn't understand until you did eventually understand, you were st uh, still supposed to be obedient. Like God tells you what to do. And even if you don't understand the instruction that God's giving you, that's not an excuse to disregard it. And so this widow, a stranger comes to her and says, hey, in this massive drought, give me the rest of your food and make sure that I eat before your son eats. And if you do, um... A miracle like you've never seen is going to happen, and you're going to have food for the entirety of the drought. And then she does it. The kind of obedience that did not define Israel at that time was found in a Gentile. And she does it. 
So when you're in a situation and you're thinking, man, obedience to God really does not make sense in this circumstance. I feel like things would work a lot better if I went my own way. I feel like if I do the thing that I think makes sense, things will go better than if I do the things that God tells me to do. Don't do it. Uh, there's a story. I don't know if this story is true, but it was, uh, it was told to me as a true story. And there was a guy working at a dock. And he, as a customs worker, one of the things that he was responsible for was getting a list of the things that were on a boat and then making sure that the people were being honest and making sure that he reported everything that was brought through. So his boss, he's like freshly hired, he's been on the job for one day and his boss comes up to him and he says, hey, this ship is coming in. Um, they have this cargo on them. I want you to not report it. If you report that cargo, I understand, but you'll need to find another job. So if you're willing to mark that paper down and not mark the cargo they're bringing in, you can stay. If you're not willing to do that, um, no hard feelings, but I'm going to need someone else for this position. So this guy is in this spot and he's like, man, I really need this job. It's like, how bad could it be? It's not illegal cargo. It's just normal stuff, whatever. Like maybe they're trying to dodge something or whatever. I don't care. I just, I need the job, but I can't lie. And so he thinks about it and he tells the guy, it's like, yeah, sorry, I, I can't do that. If I know that that car goes on the ship, I'm going to report it. And then the guy nods. He walks back out. The boss does. And then a few hours later, he comes back and he says, have you changed your mind yet? And the guy says, no. As long as I am working here, I cannot be dishonest. There is something more important than my job at stake here. And so the boss said, okay, you're hired. And what the guy didn't know is that if you have a dishonest customs worker who's willing to take bribes or any of those other issues, that's a bit of a problem. So the first thing that boss did before he hired the guy is he, did, he, he gave him a little test. Let's see if you're willing to be honest even when it costs you. Because I want to know that you're going to be honest when someone else is offering to bribe you. And that guy didn't realize it, but by refusing to do the thing that made sense in the situation, he was blessed. And so for us, when we are in situations where we have a choice between doing what God says or doing what makes sense to us, the answer is always do what God says. First of all, he owns you. And he has the right to tell you to do what to do, even if it doesn't make sense. Second of all, God loves you. And he doesn't give you commands so that he can jack you over. He gives you commands because he knows what's best. And also, even if it doesn't make sense, God can still do it. It didn't make sense for a jar with only enough flour and oil for one more meal to last for years. And yet that's exactly what God made it do. And so trusting God's ability to provide and let that fuel your obedience. And now we're going to burn through this last point. There's one last thing that I want you to see from this story. Verses 17 to the end of the chapter. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, to come to me to bring... Uh, to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lo uh, lodged and laid him on his own bed. 
And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your, in your mouth is truth. So there's a lot of things we could talk about in that. God performs a miracle to validate his messengers. Yeah. We could talk about the fact that God's strong enough to raise people from the dead. Yeah. We could also talk about God's care for the widow and the widow's son. Absolutely. There's one thing that I want you guys to notice, though. Why did God let the kid die if he was just going to raise him? Couldn't he have just left the kid alive and then not needed this entire episode? What do you think? Why did God let the kid die? Yeah. He needed, he needed to make a point. Yes. So here's the deal. In my own life, I'm going oh, to read you Proverbs 30, 7 and 9. So Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. This is a person praying to God. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Excuse me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Like, that's an interesting prayer. He says, Don't put me in such dire need that I would be tempted beyond what I can bear and steal, but don't give me such abundance that I forget who you are. One of the things that I find in life and that comes up frequently in the Bible even is that when people have it good, they forget who's giving them that good. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because the rich men often don't realize their need. And the issue is this. You see people that when things are hard, when they've got like tests out the wazoo and they don't know how they're going to study for them, when they've got a job that isn't paying the bills and they don't know how they're going to pay off their rent next month, or they're in any number of dire situations, when they're there, they recognize that they need help and they pray for it. But then as soon as they've had it really good, where God's given them such abundance that they've never been in a circumstance like that again, and they have everything they want, everything they need, and they're just vibing, and they're in that state for four years, all of the sudden, they're not on their knees as often praying for God's provision and help. And we have a tendency to, when we have it good, fall into that of forgetting who gave us that good. Because even if you have riches, God can take those riches away in a moment. If you have everything you need and everything you want, with a snap of a finger, God can make all of it disappear. And every single day, the only reason you still have that is because God is giving it to you. And so, the person in need and the person without need, both of them are in equally as much need, and both of them are having to be provided for by God, but the person in need knows it. And the person who has abundance doesn't. One of the things that I have found 
is that sometimes God introduces a problem into your life so that he can solve it and remind you who had been giving you relief all the time leading up to and after it. If you only ever have health and you're never sick and you never have issues, you don't appreciate the fact that God's giving you health. But when you have someone who's been sickly for their entire life and then they're healthy, they appreciate what's been given to them. So sometimes God takes away your health for a time so that you can remember who had given it to you to begin with, so that you can pray for God to help you, and so that when God gives it back, you have an understanding of who gave it back. And that's a situation that we're seeing here. God could have just let the kid live. He was going to raise him anyway. But God killed the kid, and in that moment, Elijah and the widow both understood the only person who can bring my kid back to life is God. And then Elijah raises the kid from the dead. And so God could have just left the kid alive, but all of a sudden, everyone knows who's letting that kid live. And there's gratitude in the heart of Elijah and in the heart of the widow for God's work in that situation. So for us, it's valuable to remember that everything we have, all of the good that we have, is a gift from God, and that even when we don't realize it, we are actually in need. And God is the one providing in every circumstance. So when bad things do come into your life, don't be upset about that, but just have it be a reminder that God's been providing up till now, and God can provide in the future, and let it fuel your prayer, and then when God answers your prayer, let that fuel your gratitude. It's important to remember who's giving you what you have. So in conclusion... From this chapter of the story, we're starting the ministry of Elijah, and we're just going to follow it through to the end. And we've seen that God is a God of wrath. God is not just a God of love and forgiveness. God judges sin, and he judges sin fiercely. God is a God of wrath, and we should have a healthy fear of God. <laughs> we also see that God sees the people no one else sees. God saw that widow inside on, and he sent his prophet to her. And that doesn't mean that God always provides for everyone. There were plenty of other widows that probably died. Jesus said that in Luke 4. There were a lot of widows in the land of Israel, but God sent Elijah to none of them. So God is not required to provide, and yet God is able to provide, and God sees everyone, and God sees you. And then finally, just remember that all that we have, God is the one who gave it to us. When we have abundance and we have comfort and we have health and we have blessing, we have a tendency to forget who's giving that to us. So train yourself to not forget that. And when you're in situations where God has taken it away, remember that he can give it back. And maybe he will, maybe he won't, but in either case, the goal is to be grateful. So with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out, and we'll do some small groups. Lord, thank you for the stories that you give us in the Bible. Thank you that we're able to look at back over history and see the way that you've interacted with people throughout time. Thank you for the power that you have illustrated to us through the actions of Elijah. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the things that we're seeing from your own character. I pray that you would help us to have a healthy fear of you because you are a God of wrath, and yet also that we would know you are a God of love, and that if we are your children, your discipline is for our good. I pray that you would help us to have faith in your provision, have faith in your discipline, have faith in the God that you are, all while living with a proper understanding that we live for you and you do not exist for our sake. I pray that you would help us to have a proper reverence, proper love, and obedience. 
And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.